Welcome to HIV Frontlines, U.S. Edition, a podcast series from TheBody.com, focusing on frontline workers in the HIV epidemic in the United States. In this series, we'll talk with the dedicated people who work tirelessly to fight HIV, from HIV prevention workers and treatment advocates to outspoken journalists and policymakers. For more information on this podcast, including a full transcript, please visit us on the web. This is Bonnie Goldman, Editorial Director of TheBody.com. Welcome to HIV Frontlines, U.S. Edition. Today I'll be speaking with physician and scientist Dr. Anthony Fauci, Director of the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which conducts and supports research to understand, treat, and ultimately prevent infectious, immunologic, and allergic diseases. As director, Dr. Fauci has overseen the development of critical international and national programs to fight HIV and other infectious diseases. From the very beginning of the pandemic in the early 1980s, Dr. Fauci was focused on HIV. His research has helped us better understand how HIV works and develop new treatment strategies. Dr. Fauci was also one of the architects of the U.S. President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, known as PEFAR. He is also a widely published author and has won many awards for his scientific accomplishments. In June 2008, Dr. Fauci was given the country's highest civilian award, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, for his outstanding efforts to help people live longer and healthier lives with HIV. It's an honor to have Dr. Fauci with us here today. I wanted to talk to you after I read your essay in the May issue of Nature magazine. It's always interesting to read reflections on 25 years of HIV. Can you describe your encounter with HIV in 1981? Where were you working and what were people saying about these very first few cases? Well, I can certainly remember it uh, really clear as a bell because it turned out to be one of the real transforming times in my professional career, if not my own life. I was sitting in my office at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and I was a infectious diseases physician and a basic science immunologist working on the interface between infections and the immune system. And I had been doing that for about 10 years, nine or so years following my infectious disease immunology fellowship. And I remember reading at my desk at the NIH hospital labs that there was a report of five gay men from Los Angeles who had pneumocystis pneumonia. It was in June of 1981. I remember thinking this was sort of an odd curiosity. I couldn't figure out why a cluster of five gay men should have what looked like an immunodeficient state for no reason. Uh, There was speculation that maybe they had consumed a toxic drug that suppressed their immune system, and but no real anchoring to any reality of what could be causing this. And then about a month later, in July of 1981, another report from the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Report landed on my desk of over 20 people, now from not only L.A., but from San Francisco and New York, again, all gay men, this time not only with pneumocystis pneumonia, but with Kaposi sarcoma in some of the individuals. And I remember at that point, essentially one of the first times in my still young medical career that I actually got goose pimples thinking about what this might mean because it sure looked like a new disease to me and it certainly smelled like it was an infectious disease. But 
none of us at that time had any idea what it was. There was a lot of speculation, a lot of guessing. Was this some sort of a mutated form of cytomegalovirus or some such similar virus that was commonly spread among gay men? Or was this, God forbid, a new microbe? That wasn't necessarily on the top of anybody's list. It was just a lot of puzzlement as to what was going on. And then over the next several weeks to months, the mystery began to unfold even more because it was not only gay men, but injection drug users were starting to get this strange syndrome, which had been inappropriately called GRID, or gay-related immunodeficiency disease. Uh, and then after a few more months, more reports of women uh, who were either injection drug users or possibly sexual partners of people who were infected. And then the first cases of babies born of infected mothers months after that. So over a period that began in the summer of 1981, over a period of about a year, there was this gradual unfolding of this extraordinary mystery of which we were all in the, in the dark about because it, it, it was highly suggestive that this was a sexually transmitted disease and that it was an infectious disease. But it wasn't until the spring of 1983 in the paper by Montagnier and their, and their colleagues in science was there the first suggestion that we were dealing with a new virus, in this case a retrovirus, and it wasn't until the following year, 1984, when Gallo and his colleagues showed the direct causative connection between this retrovirus and people who had this unusual syndrome. So it was a very eerie, depressing, anxiety-provoking period from the summer of 1981 through the spring of 1983 of dealing with a disease that was growing in its numbers and in its intensity that was appeared to be almost universally fatal because by the time patients got to a physician like myself who was taking care of these people here in our hospital at NIH, often they had very fulminant courses because we didn't know at the time, but it was likely that they had been infected for several years before they even came to our attention. But once they got very sick, there was very little that we could do for them. So those early years I refer to when I talk about this as the very darkest years of my professional career. And they were dark because all the people you were seeing with this kind of syndrome died. Yes, they were. They died, and they were either died directly under my care, or they went back home, and you didn't hear from them again. But they were all de dreadfully ill, the ones that we were seeing, because we didn't get the opportunity to study people in the very early phases of disease. For example, now that we have a very sensitive diagnostic test, if someone gets infected, they may not get sick without any therapy for a relatively long period of time. So they're walking around looking and feeling very well. Those patients didn't come to us in the hospital because they had no idea they were infected. It was only after the screening test became available did we start to see people much earlier on in the course of their disease. And that's when we had the opportunity over a period of time to take care of them before they became dreadfully ill. There was another era or period there uh, mentioned the first few years of not even knowing what you were dealing with were the darkest of the years. Once the virus was discovered in 1983 and 84, we went through another few years, at least until 1987, 
when there were no drugs at all. And it was only when the first drug, AZT, was approved in 1987 was there some hope that you could actually do something for these people. And there was some optimism early on when AZT was used, but it became very clear after a while that the virus soon became resistant to a single drug. And it was only literally another nine or so years later until 1996 when the combinations of drugs, including the protease inhibitors, did we have a real transformation in how you were able to take care of HIV-infected individuals. So from 1987 to 1996, we did some good. People benefited somewhat from the drugs, but the benefit was transient. You didn't suppress the virus completely to below detectable levels the way we're able to do right now when you give combinations of drugs. So that period from 86 to 96 was a period that was certainly better than it was before there were any drugs, but we still had the feeling we were losing the battle against HIV because we didn't have the best possible combination of drugs. And it was only, as I mentioned, when we got to 1996 and beyond did we have dramatic improvements in patients. I'm curious, how did you diagnose the early cases before there was a test? Purely clinically, it was diagnosed because they came in with a very characteristic syndrome. When you're dealing with the first handful of cases, you have no idea what was going on except some common threads that that linked the patients. They were gay men. They had these diseases like pneumocystis pneumonia and Kaposi sarcoma, which almost exclusively are seen in immunodeficient people, and some of them had some epidemiological connection, sexual uh, contact with each other or what have you. So it was merely a pure clinical diagnosis that was made on a set of criteria that evolved over a period of months that became the criteria for the diagnosis of this disease, even without laboratory confirmation. And it was only after the virus was discovered and the diagnostic test was developed, were we able to confirm the diagnosis of AIDS in people who clinically had a syndrome that looked very much like AIDS, but it was nailed down when the confirmatory laboratory tests were done. And this was before the internet, before email, and it was happening really on both coasts. So it was in L.A., at San Francisco, and New York, and Washington, D.C. So how did the, the first researchers looking at this communicate? Well, we communicated the way we communicated before the facilities that you mentioned, the email and the internet. We communicated by phone, by writing, by discussing at meetings, by traveling to, to meet each other. I went to San Francisco several times, went up to New York several times, more than several times, continually back and forth trying to figure out what was going on. In those early days, you were all piecing together the puzzle and writing up what was the syndrome? What did it look like? What were the symptoms? That's exactly right. I mean, we were writing them up. They were people, usually gay men, who had a profound immunodeficiency manifested by defining diseases that you only see in immunodeficient people. And those characteristic diseases were pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, Kaposi sarcoma, cytomegalovirus, toxoplasmosis, atypical tuberculosis, candida, candida esophagitis, cryptococcosis and cryptococcal meningitis. These were all diseases that you almost never see in otherwise healthy people. And they clustered among people with this rather bizarre syndrome. 
Right now, they're they're the 16 AIDS-defining opportunistic infections, right? Right. Did you ever expect that you would be working in HIV all these years? Well, in the beginning, we were not sure what was going on. When we saw the virus that was discovered as the cause of AIDS, we thought that we would then be able to develop therapies, which we were successful in doing. It took a lot of years before we got successful therapy. But what we none of us were able to predict was the absolute breathtakingly depressing scope of this. It went from handfuls of patients in cities in New York City to becoming one of the most devastating pandemics in the history of civilization. I would never have predicted in the summer of 1981 when I saw my first cases that this would be a disease that 27 years later will have infected over 65 million people and killed over 25 million people. I don't think anyone would have predicted that. What has kept you in the field? Has all the developments been very exciting to watch? Some people have gotten discouraged, I guess. Sure, some people have gotten discouraged. Some people have gotten burned out. I mean, I was driven by the enormity of the problem, by the fact that as a researcher and as a clinician, I could make a contribution to it. As a science administrator, I could marshal and argue for greater funding for both research and public health endeavors. And what's kept me through it throughout the years is, A, it's a very exciting field. Uh, It's devastating, uh, obviously, when so many people are getting sick and dying now globally throughout the world. The science is very exciting. We've made some very important advances in science, and we've been able to translate these particularly to drugs that have a major positive impact. And we're trying very hard to help in preventive modalities, which is really you can't just address this pandemic with treatment alone. You have to have prevention. And one of the major components of prevention is the development of a vaccine. And that's one of the things that we're working on. So it's a field that continually changes and continually is very challenging. So it's the challenging nature, the enormity of the problem, and the possibility that we can do some good that has kept me involved in it so intensively over the last 27 years. So in your article, you say that unlike many other diseases that affect mostly the poor and the disenfranchised, HIV captured the attention of so many people, including world leaders and the medical community, activists, celebrities. And these same people were not activated by the fact that malaria was killing millions of people in the developing world or that millions of women die in childbirth every year. Can you conjecture why there was such a dramatic scientific and public health response to HIV and why it interested all these people? Well, see, I'm certain why. And I've written about it in the article. And and what I think happened is that you have these diseases like malaria, which kills 1.3 million people a year, tuberculosis, which kills 1.6 million a year, almost exclusively in developing nations, diarrheal diseases, respiratory diseases, neglected tropical diseases. Most of the developed world looked upon that as somebody else's problem because you don't usually see those types of things in the developed world. But we had a very interesting circumstance with regard to HIV because it was first recognized in the developed world. In fact, in the United States of America, in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York. So we became very aware of, frightened by, impressed with, uh, and involved with HIV AIDS right from the very beginning. As it ultimately turned out, HIV is a disease of the developing world much more than it is a disease of the developed world. 90% of all the infections are seen in low and middle income countries and 67% of all the infections are in southern Africa. 
So what happened is that we became acutely aware of the devastation of HIV, not only in the United States, but in developing nations. And when we went to Africa to explore what was going on there with HIV, we came face to face in confronting the enormity of the problem of malaria and tuberculosis. So in some paradoxical way, attention has now been put on malaria and tuberculosis and neglected tropical diseases merely because they are diseases that tend to travel with, if I can use that metaphor, travel with HIV. So if you go to developing countries in sub-Saharan Africa, the three big killers are HIV, malaria, and tuberculosis together with neglected tropical diseases. So all of a sudden, the developed world was fully cognizant of the fact that malaria is a great killer and tuberculosis is a great killer. And because of that, a lot more attention now is being paid to malaria when several decades ago it was thought of as someone else's disease that no one really knew a lot about or cared about. One of the spin-offs of the devastation of HIV has been the positive effect of calling attention to other diseases that also deserve our resources and our attention, such as malaria and tuberculosis. You say that HIV AIDS is predominantly a disease of the developing world, but isn't it true that places like Washington, D.C., Baltimore, New York, and the Southeast have huge rates of HIV infection in communities of color? Absolutely, and in fact, some sections of segments of our society are just like the developing world. I mean, Washington, D.C., you mentioned it's Washington, D.C. has the worst problem of any city or state in the country. It is nine times the incidence of HIV compared to most other cities. Uh, an astounding figure of 5% of the entire population of the District of Columbia is infected with HIV, and 2% have AIDS. It's very predominantly and very disproportionately impacting the African-American population. Washington, D.C. is 60% African-American. The new cases that we have each year, 80 to 90% of them are among African-Americans. In the United States as a whole, and this is reflective of what we're seeing in, in cities similar to Washington, places like Baltimore, Newark, and other places with a high density of HIV infection, of the new infections each year in this country among men, 49% are among African-American men, and then the new infection among women, 65% are among African-American women, and yet African-Americans comprise only about 12% of the United States population. So there's a great disparity and a disproportionate burden that's borne by African-Americans. I know this is not really your focus, but do you have any ideas about why HIV has settled into this population so powerfully? Well, there's a number of reasons. It's a confluence of events. There's the issue of the inner city nidus of injection drug use, the spillover of injection drug use by heterosexual contact, sexual partners, young women of male injection drug users get infected. Women themselves who are in crack cocaine sell sex for crack. They can get infected and pass it on to their sexual partners. So it becomes a confounding issue of everything from injection drug use to stigmatization associated with homosexuality among gay men who are African-American. Do you think that enough is being done to address the epidemic in this population? 
No, I don't think so. And, and we all know that we need to do more uh, in everything. We need to, the community leaders need to step up to the plate. The uh, African-American clergy need to do more. I think the city, states, and federal government need to do more. We all need to do more. This is a very serious problem in that population. I wanted to go back to talking about HIV research. I thought it was interesting that after HIV was discovered, research moved so quickly. Why do you think researchers in HIV have made such strides developing such a large number of effective drugs and turning an almost invariably fatal disease into a manageable one, while researchers studying other diseases, other viruses, have still not made much progress? Well, I think it's pretty clear that the, the amount of resources that have been devoted to HIV is extraordinary. The NIH spends about 11% of its budget, its entire budget on HIV research, $2.9 billion per year. Also, pharmaceutical companies are very heavily invested in working with the government and academia in developing drugs because these are drugs that people have to take for the rest of their lives. And so the possibility for a huge profit margin is great. These are blockbuster drugs when they work because you have millions and millions of people who will be taking these drugs for the rest of their lives. So there's not only an investment in the government research enterprise, but there's a great incentive for pharmaceutical companies to get involved in developing drugs. That's not the case with diseases like malaria or tuberculosis or other types of infections, because the incentive in the market for developing interventions for that is not nearly as great as is the case with HIV. The pace of HIV understanding and drug development, it seems so fast, and the assumptions are so continually upturned. As a researcher, what has been your experience standing on the front lines of this? Well, it's exactly what you say. Uh, there's an extraordinary rapidity of understanding of discoveries of advances. There are a lot of researchers who are working on HIV. There's an enormous amount of money that's put into that. I mean, if you compare, we spend $120 million a year on malaria in research at the NIH. We spend $2.9 billion on HIV. I mean, that in and of itself can explain the difference in advances in biomedical research related to those two different diseases. Do you think that these advances in research help because many of the HIV researchers were gay and so it made the disease all that more personal? No, I don't think so. I Certainly there are gay researchers in every discipline. I think that in the big picture of things, I think gay researchers have made major contributions, as have straight researchers. I don't think because there are many more gay researchers, as you said, in HIV, that that has had a major impact on the ultimate outcome. What impact do you think the early activism by ACT UP and other groups had? Well, I think it was a positive impact. They really demanded to have a say in things like the design of the clinical trials, as opposed to being very restrictive when you had no drug that really was available for people. The, the exclusionary nature of clinical trials was unacceptable to them, and they were correct in that. And the uh, rapidity in which drugs would be approved by the FDA when you have a fatal disease for which there are no drugs are available, they demonstrated against that. A lot of the points that the activists made in the early years and even today were very, very valid points. So I think they opened the eyes of researchers and public health officials and government officials to pay more attention to the kinds of needs that people with HIV infection or at risk for HIV infection had. So all in all, I think the activist movement was a very positive thing in HIV. Did you feel that way at the beginning when you were being shouted at? 
Uh, yes, I did. I mean, that's the reason why we ultimately came to a rapprochement, because I realized although they were shouting at me and yelling at me, it really wasn't something personal. It was a, a great pain and a fear and a concern that they were feeling, and I was very empathetic towards that. And that's the reason why we developed very good relationships ultimately with them. But you're right, in the beginning, they were very confrontated because they needed to get our attention. And indeed, they did get our attention. They certainly got my attention. You say in your article that we must do better at delivering prevention and that less than 20% of those at risk of HIV infection are currently receiving such help. Which people at risk were you referring to? Well, I mean, if you go through the list of, of men who have sex with men, the idea of behavioral modification, counseling about how they can avoid their risk, less than 20% of those people have access to that. The distribution of condoms by people who would benefit from the use of condoms, less than 10, 12% of them get it. Injection drug users who can benefit from clean needles and syringes, again, less than 20% of the people who could benefit from them are actually getting them. So there are a lot of preventive modalities that are available and proven to be effective. And in general, when you add them all up, less than 20% of the people who would benefit them actually have access to them. So we've got to do better in making these modalities of prevention accessible to the people who would benefit from them. You mentioned how critical it is, the provision of clean needles and syringes. How come 25 years into this pandemic, the scientific community has been unable to convince politicians to allow for syringe exchange in their state? Well, there are several states that actually do fund needle exchange programs. The federal government does not. Uh, I made a recommendation a long time ago that we should be funding needle exchange programs. Uh, The federal government has not accepted that recommendation, but several of the states have. You mentioned circumcision as the newest way to prevent HIV, at least in the developing world. Why do you think circumcision doesn't seem a factor in the developed world? Well, it's the, it's the rate of infection that one sees. For example, the rate of infection in countries in which there are a number of other sexually transmitted diseases that confound the probability of transmitting it and make it worse if you're uncircumcised, whereas in the developed world, in which, for example, in the United States, the majority of people are, in fact, circumcised. There's less sexually transmitted disease in addition to HIV. So the impact is less when you have a much lower rate of transmission and a much lower incidence and prevalence. It's when you get into those countries, such as where we did the trials in sub-Saharan Africa, where the incidence and prevalence is very high, that circumcision makes a difference. Dr. Fletcher, can you tell us why you think it has been so challenging to find an HIV vaccine? Well, it's pretty clear that the body does not make an adequate immune response against HIV when it's naturally exposed to this. Most of the vaccines that we successfully make, we model our vaccine development against natural infection. I mean, even if you take devastating diseases like measles, smallpox, polio, those viral diseases are diseases that even though people die and suffer from them, ultimately the body mounts an immune response that successfully eradicates the virus from the body. So you go to a person who's been infected and you look at the nature of the immune response that's been elicited by natural infection and you develop a vaccine that mimics the development of that response and that's how you get a successful vaccine. Unfortunately with HIV, HIV is very different. HIV does not elicit naturally a good protective immune response against this particular virus. 
And so we don't even know if the body is capable of eliciting a protective response. So when we develop a vaccine, we have to do better than natural infection. And thus far, we've been unsuccessful in doing that. So it really is a question of not picking the right vaccine as to whether or not the vaccine is even going to ever be able to induce a response that would be protective. That's a very formidable scientific challenge. So are we looking at another 10 years, 20 years? or It's impossible to predict. It would be folly for me to give you a time frame because I don't have any idea how long it's going to take. Uh-huh. You say in your article we're in, in the infancy of discovering something. That's correct. Uh, so it's a long way away. You end your piece saying that history will not judge us kindly if we don't deliver HIV interventions for the people it most affects. Uh, were you talking about people in the developing world or people most affected in the U.S., like the incarcerated African-American men? And I'm women? talking about all of those people who need access, who don't have access, both in the developed world, but the problem is much more profound in the developing world. Because, like I mentioned, even though we're doing much better in getting treatment to people who need them, only about 28 to 30 percent of the people who actually need HIV drugs are getting them. So we really need, I, I refer to it when I made my address before the United Nations General Assembly a couple of days ago, I referred to it as the implementation gap, the gap between the fruits of HIV research in the form of prevention and therapy and getting those fruits delivered to the people who really need them. Namely, we're not implementing the programs that are going to be the things that get access to the people who need these interventions. Uh And why aren't we implementing them? Well, it's very, very difficult when you're dealing with poor countries and you're dealing with governments that are not particularly organized to do this. You have to assist. You have to get leadership from them. Sometimes we don't get the leadership that we need, and it costs a lot of money. That's the reason. Finally, I wanted to ask you, what has been the most important thing you have learned being at the front lines of this pandemic? Well, I think the most important thing is that we have a very formidable problem, and we have to keep pushing, and we cannot give up. We've done an awful lot. Uh, I use the terminology, much accomplished, much to do. We've accomplished breathtaking advances in science, but we still have a, a moral obligation to do much, much more, and that's the thing that's impressed me the most. And is the NIH budget for HIV going up or going down? It's been flat over the last few years, as the entire NIH budget has. Over the years, it's rapidly accelerated, but for the last five years, it's been relatively flat. But the whole NIH budget has been flat for the last five years. Do you hope that the coming administration may look at it again? And I hope so. Is that something you'll be working on? Uh, yes, indeed. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Fauci, for taking the time to talk with me. You're quite welcome. It was a pleasure. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. This has been HIV Frontlines U.S. Edition from The Body. Be sure to check in frequently at thebody.com for the latest news and information on HIV.